Well, I was uh, in the midst of a sermon series the last two weeks and what was supposed to be this week and next week, uh, dealing with the uh, topic of what we want to be as a church, who we are to be as a church. And, and I was actually started on this week's sermon and, and working my way through it this week. And all of a sudden, come Thursday morning, I just felt like uh, that it was a different sermon that needed to be preached this week. So, so we scrapped what we had before, we'll come back to that next week, and started brand new on Thursday and decided to look at Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. And as we prepare to look to God's Word, I want you to consider three different scenarios. The first scenario we might call living in Jerusalem. Now, the idea that I'm trying to draw here of living in Jerusalem, the picture, the illustration is, is living in a place where God is rightly worshipped, where, where the culture is really oriented toward and surrounding the person of God. He dictates the way life is lived, and though it is lived imperfectly and sinfully, he is the major influence on life there. That we might call living in Jerusalem. The second scenario is living in Samaria. Now Samaria is a little bit away from Jerusalem, both geographically and culturally. You see, Samaria believes in God, the God who is, and they come from a background where he was rightly worshipped, but they've kind of wandered away a little bit. They don't worship him quite as rightly anymore. And their lives are somewhat disordered because of that. But there's still a very loud echo of having life centered on God. So that much of the culture still kind of retains some of those characteristics. Third scenario, living in Babylon. Babylon is a faraway place, nowhere near Jerusalem. It is a place where people were carried off in exile. People who longed to be in Jerusalem were taken away to Babylon. This culture that chased after other gods, a culture that, that sometimes chased after no gods at all, a culture that was inwardly focused on itself. That is what it is to live in Babylon. Now, as you consider these three different scenarios, I just ask you this question. Which is most like the situation we face today? Do we live in Jerusalem, a place where all things are ordered rightly in the way they're supposed to be and centered on God? Do we live in a culture like Samaria where, well, it was once right, we had it right before, but now it's kind of wandered away? Or do we live in a place like Babylon where the world in which we live is chasing after all the wrong gods, and we exist as a very small minority trying to be faithful in the midst of a world that is unfaithful. I would argue that the existence of life in Babylon is the life that is most like the life that we live here in America today. And if that is indeed the case, then that means we must understand if we are to be faithful here today in America, we must understand what it looks like to live as exiles. 
That's why Jeremiah is so helpful here in Jeremiah 29 and why I picked this text today. Jeremiah is writing a letter to the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar had carried off to Babylon, and he's telling them how they are to live in the midst of their Babylonian exile. And so I hope that today, as we look to God's word, we will see in it a word not just for exiles a long time ago, but also a word for us as exiles today. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us now. Speak to us clearly and boldly and strongly. We pray that you would convict us of sin and sanctify us in holiness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something we did uh, in, in the past weeks. We, uh, we for the reading of, of God's word now, would you, would you rise as we read, as I read God's word here, just out of respect for our Lord and the word that he has given us. This is Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, which is our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, let me tell you this. It is hard to be a cultural outsider. I learned this message when I moved here some 14 plus years ago. There were all these weird and foreign things that were here that I knew nothing of. Things like Kogels and Verners. Things like Coney Dogs and things like, things like, like, the whole camping thing and up north. 
My goodness, when I was growing up, I honestly tell you this, I don't think I knew a single person who had a camper of any kind when I was growing up. Not a single one. Not, not the big RV, not a little pop-up, not, none. It was completely foreign to me. I came here and I was living in a different world. And then there were all these weird perceptions you guys have. Things like, you guys thought that the good guys won the 1968 World Series. Or, or that that overtime goal by Steve Eiserman was something other than like the worst moment ever. It was weird. I joke about these things, but, but there is a sense in which Christians exist as aliens and exiles in a strange and foreign land. And it can be hard. We, we read about it in, in Hebrews 11 together earlier. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. You see, they were exiles. And we have to realize that that, that is what we are. We are exiles. We're, we're exiles not because of some cultural drift, not because of the results of any election, but we are exiles because of the fall of mankind, the sin of Adam, and our involvement in that, in the garden. Right? There was a time before that when all was good and all was right. Everything was perfect. There were no problems. But Adam sins, and we with him. All of creation falls. And ever since then, we have lived as exiles of the city of God, now living in the city of man. Our citizenship is of heaven, and as such, we will always be strangers and exiles in the city of man. And so it becomes very important for us to ask that question and come to an answer, how do we live as exiles? And this text, I think, is a very helpful word. It tells us that if we are to live as exiles, we must keep our eyes on God. We must keep our eyes on where we are. And we must keep our eyes on where we're going. First, keep your eyes on God. What I mean by that is that we must, we must maintain a focus on the person of God and realize that no matter what we face, no matter what injuries are inflicted upon us, no matter what difficulties we have that come our way, that God is still sovereignly at work in our life. When times are difficult, when things are hard, this can, this can be a, a hard thing to endure, can't it? Right? It's hard for us to understand, and our natural reactions to trials might be to, to cry out to God, why? Why, God? Why are you doing this? This makes no sense. You should have asked me first, because I know how things should have gone. Now, we, of course, wouldn't say that out loud, but it, it really kind of is this undertow, this undercurrent to the way we think oftentimes, isn't it? We think you should have done it this way, God. Not the way that you chose to do it. Well, that, that's normal. That, that's how things 
often are. We, we don't like the way he's doing things. It's always been that way, uh, trust me. When Nebuchadnezzar came and carried off all these people into exile in Babylon, there was nobody, and I mean nobody amongst them, saying, oh good, I've been wanting to do some traveling. Right? They, they all hated the fact that they were being carried away. Right? They had homes, and they had lives, and they had possessions that were all being left behind. They were being taken off to this foreign place where it would be a, a hard life, and they didn't like it. And I dare say that if they had taken a vote, they would have unanimously voted against it. But they didn't get a vote. They merely had to go where God was taking them, even as they didn't understand what he was doing. And I guess it's to be expected that they wouldn't understand, and we often would not understand what God is doing, for after all, as Isaiah puts it, in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, just because we don't understand what God is doing or why God is doing it, that doesn't nullify the fact that he is actively involved in accomplishing his purposes in our lives. That's part of the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus, right? I mean, that's what happened at the cross. At the cross, it looked like all was lost. Jesus hanging there, darkness falling upon him. His pain written across his agonized face, blood dripping from him. His hands, his feet nailed to the cross, hanging there in agony, taking all of his strength merely to breathe. It looked terrible. It looked worse than we can possibly imagine. It looked as if sin and death and Satan had won. But we know they hadn't. Because God was doing a mighty work through his son, Christ Jesus. He was accomplishing forgiveness for you and for me. He was bearing the righteous curse of God on that cross so that we would not need to bear it. He was paying the penalty that we owed there so that we might, by faith, have salvation and forgiveness in him. He was going through what we deserved. And he was giving us what he had earned. It looked to all the world like it was the worst thing ever. When in reality, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to us. You see, that's the way God works often. So we can trust that in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, not most things, all things. 
I love the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, which asks, what are God's works of providence? The answer is God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's a, that's a mighty statement. It's a beautiful statement. It's a comforting statement, isn't it? That God is in charge. He's in control. And that's why we can know what Paul says in Romans 8, that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So since our covenant making and covenant keeping God is sovereign over all, we can know that it is no mistake that we are a people in exile. We would much rather be living in that perfect Jerusalem, in that city of God, that city where there is no sin and there is no pain and there is no sorrow and there is no death. Each of us would pick that if we could, but for the Lord's purposes, he has us here right now. And so we trust him. Because it hasn't happened just because he wasn't paying attention. It's because he has brought us here, just like he did with them. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Right? From an earthly perspective, it seemed like that was Nebuchadnezzar who did that. It was his plan, his doing, his work. But the Lord says, not so quick. It is I who have sent you into exile, he says. It is I who have done this. It was my plan, my work, my doing, my purpose for my goals, for my glory. And so it is with us. We live in a Babylon of sorts as exiles even now. And God knew about it. He not only knew about it, he is at work through it, not only at work through it, but at work having ordained it to happen for his purposes. And if we are to understand his purposes and desires to the best of our ability, then we must pay attention to who he is. And that's what we see in his word. Right? We have to focus on his word. We have to return to his word. We have to look to the scriptures so we can see who God is, so we understand his person, his character, his, his revelation to us of himself. It is there that he has spoken. It is there he has made himself known. We tend to follow the culture of the city of man, and we just look within and we say, you know, what do I think? What do I feel? We look to our own hearts. What does my heart want? And we let that shade how we see everything. But God says, don't look to your heart. Look instead to me. Look instead to me, the Lord said. There were, there were those who had risen up in that day who, who claimed to be, be prophets and they proclaimed a a prosperity gospel of sorts. They were saying to the people, you know, just trust God and you'll get to go home tomorrow. Right? Just, just trust God and this will be all done and it'll be good. And the Lord says, don't listen to them. 
Because you know what? You're not going to get everything just like you want it. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, in verse 8, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. and Do not let, listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So, so you see, he's saying, well, while you might be tempted to listen to these people who are tickling your ears with good news, what seems to be good news, good news according to your heart, it is not good news that the Lord has offered. For the good news that the Lord has offered will always be centered on Christ Jesus. It is good news that is painful news at times. It leaves scars at times. But it is good news indeed. It is the only news that is truly good news. So while we may be tempted to listen to others who want to tell us what we want to hear, the reality is we must not listen to them for they are liars. They may or may not be well-intentioned, but they are certainly wrong. Look not to them, look not within, but look to the Lord. Keep your eyes on God. Second thing, keep your eyes on where you are. What I mean by this is don't spend time, we do this sometimes, but don't spend all your time waxing nostalgically about how things were so much better back in Jerusalem. Remember back in the day, things were so much better. If only we could go back in time. If only we could just go back in time, it would be great again. It would be just like, well, I don't have a DeLorean or a flux capacitor, and you don't either. So we're not going to be able to go back in time. Right? So, so living in the past is not something that we should do. Right? There, there are some senses in which life really was better back then, but nostalgia has a way of, of kind of magnifying those things and forgetting about the other things, doesn't it? You know, the, the good old days. Oh, the good old days. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. That deals with time as well, doesn't it? We remember the good old days, but, but as the eminent theologian Billy Joel once said, the good old days weren't always so good. And tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. Now, tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems because Christ Jesus is with us and he has given us all our tomorrows. Now, that's not what Billy Joel meant when he said it, but it is true. It is true that there is a tomorrow that lays in front of us that, that God has already ordained. He is, he is preparing us for it, and we will walk that road with him. And so we, we shouldn't spend all our time looking to walk backwards in time, but rather we can only walk forward in time. We do so with the Lord, and so we do so joyfully with the Lord. Jeremiah says to the people of God, don't spend your lives living in the past. In fact, the reason I took you into exile was because you were pretty wrapped up in sin, even living in that good place, as it were. And so I had to do a reset of types. Right? We had to pull you out of that and start over. Because, because even in Jerusalem, even in a place where God was at the center of all things, there was a whole lot of sin And so, instead of living in the past and longing to go back and saying, if only we could be like it once was, what we must do is establish a faithful presence here and now. 
Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying live where you are and when you are. Right? Live the life that I've given you, not the life that you wish you had back then. Live even though it's not the perfect place even though there is much wrong with the culture in which you live. Live a faithful life there and be an outpost for the glory of God in your culture. You see, the church is to be an embassy of sorts for the kingdom of God, and we are to be its ambassadors. You know how it works with an embassy? It's in a place, let's say it's the American embassy in Germany, right? It is on German soil, except by virtue of the fact that it is the American embassy, it is not German soil. It has actually becomes American soil. It is part of, of America, even though it is in Germany. And, and the people who are there are American citizens. And that is how we are. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens that God has placed here in the midst of a foreign land, that we might be as ambassadors. Now, now what do ambassadors do? But they, they, they have a number of jobs, but part of it is to, to benefit relations between the place where they've come from and the place where they are, right? To, to help those relationships. And so there's a sense in which as we live in the city of man, we should do so hoping to display and trying to display and exhibit the benefits of the city of God, trying to show what a beautiful thing it is. At the same time, though, while we live in the city of man, even as citizens of God, God is calling us to seek the welfare of the city of man as well. Seek the welfare, he says in verse 7. The word there is actually the shalom. We've talked about that many times, right? It's translated peace often, right? Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. God's calling is not for us to just retreat into some Christian subculture and not ever interact with anybody else, but rather we, we should be there in the midst of others, seeking the welfare of others. We live there as outsiders, as citizens of God's kingdom, but we live there and we seek the shalom of that place where we live. We we, we seek the flourishing of relationships, of communities, of structures, of culture itself. We, we look for the wholeness and work for the wholeness and completeness and harmony and in relationships with God and with others in the place where we live. We, we long for things to fit together like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And so we work to bring about righteous and justice righteousness and justice. We, we work to, to love our neighbors and be committed to their well-being. We, we are active in deeds of righteousness and deeds of mercy and kindness. And yes, we even get active politically, right? We get active politically. We share our political opinions. We, we proclaim those things that we believe. We, we campaign for candidates that we support. We vote for them. We, we get involved. 
We support them. We give them money if we want. We do all these things, not just to get what we want, though, but seeking the welfare of the city or the state or the country where you live. But we don't let our work end there. We seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, the Lord says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Be committed to prayer. Not just pray for yourselves while you're in the city, but pray for the city. Pray for its welfare. You know, we sang earlier Psalm 122, and you'll notice there was the one part, of it, as we sang it, it said, pray for the peace, the peace of Zion. The ESV translation just says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Right? Pay for the peace, the welfare of the city of God. And what this passage is telling us, in the same way as we do that, pray for the welfare and the peace of the city where God has brought us. Even though it is a foreign city, even though it is not ours, pray for it. Pray, Paul would tell us in 1 Timothy, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, and, and, and I've heard people, this happened with people on one side of the aisle back when President Obama was president and people on the other side of the aisle when, when President Trump was president. Oh, pray for him. I'll pray for him. I'll pray Psalm 109, verse 8, right? May his days be few. May another take his office. Right? That's not what we're talking about. You know, God is not mocked. Pray for whoever holds those offices. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's what Peter said. Honor the emperor. When he said that, and when Paul said to pray for those in power, in high positions... They were talking about Nero. Nero was the emperor at the time. Nero, who was by no means a good man. He was married to his wife, but then had an affair with a former slave, and his mother got upset at him, so he had her killed, and then he got rid of his wife, and then he took another wife who was his mistress who was already pregnant but then when he got in a fight with her he decided to kill her as well he basically became incredibly paranoid about people trying to usurp authority and killed whoever he was worried about and then his ire turned to the Christians you may have heard the idea of while Rome, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, the idea of the great fire of Rome, and he, he was kind of being blamed for things, and so he had to find a scapegoat, and who did he blame? But he blamed the Christians. He scapegoated the Christian church there in Rome, and, and said they are to blame. They are the problem. He would, at times, impale Christians on stakes, he would cover them with pitch and burn them alive to light his garden parties. 
This is not a good man by any stretch of the imagination. And yet Peter says of this very same man, honor the emperor. Paul says pray for those in high positions. And frankly, we as a church have done a terrible job of this. Christians who are Democrats have done a terrible job of it in the last four years. And before that, for eight years, Christians who were Republicans did a terrible job. Frankly, I'm going to be honest with you, as I've looked at my own life and my own prayer life, I've done a terrible job with it with presidents on both sides of the aisle. I've not been as faithful as I should in praying for our presidents. I've not been as, as steadfast and committed to pray for them as I should be. We all need to lift up those people for the welfare of the city where we live. And that's why we try to pray for them here at church every, if not every Sunday, very often. We try to pray for them. We pray for Democrats. We pray for Republicans because we're praying for the welfare of the city, of the state, of the country where we live. Not just because we're concerned about the impact on ourselves, but on the city of man. So keep your eyes on God. Keep your eyes on where you are. Finally and quickly now, keep your eyes on where you are going. We live in a Babylon of sorts. We work in that Babylon of sorts. We pray for that Babylon of sorts, but know this, we are not forever bound to this Babylon. There is a city we are being taken to the Lord is at work, and we look forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place, for you kn I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. God's plan is foundational. It is written down in permanent ink. Right? He, he has a plan for what he is doing, and it is for our benefit, and we know that. And it's not a matter of, you know, spend your time there, and if you're good enough, and you work enough, and you accomplish enough, and you earn enough brownie points, then I will take you back. No, his eternal plan is written down, and our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And he is already working out those things. You see, the gospel is good because the gospel is not based upon what we do. It is based upon what he has done. And so the salvation that is ours is not a matter of us accomplishing it. It is a matter of us receiving the salvation that he has already accomplished in Christ Jesus. And so he says, I have this plan and I know the plans and I will work out these plans to give you a future and a hope and then... After, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Note the order, right? He's got his plan. He's doing his work in response to the gospel, in response to the goodness, in response to the unearned grace of God, we call out to God and we, we, we praise God and we worship God knowing that deliverance has already been provided and it prompts us to seek God all the more and as we seek him all the more we find him. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places 
where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That is our ultimate reality. That is where this is all headed. He will gather those who are his. Exile sent out to all the places over the earth. People of every nation, of every tongue, of every people group, gathered together around the throne of the Lamb. That is where we will one day be. Right? That's the ultimate promise one day, right? That, that the new Jerusalem will descend out of heaven and it will be ours and God will dwell with man and we will be his and he will be ours and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and sin and grief and pain and death will be no more and the former things will have passed away and he will be making all things new. So in closing, regardless of how you feel about the elections this week and regardless of your political leanings, we realize that it's patently clear that we live in times that are, are as divided as any. And this provides us as the church an opportunity to show the world something different. In a world of division, let us be united around Christ. And in a, a world of discord, let us experience and express the peace that only Christ can give. In a world of vitriol, let us show the kindness that Christ has shown to us. In a world of hatred, let us love our neighbors as Christ has loved us and has commanded us to do. And in a world of political idolatry, let us find our hope in Christ alone. For whether the president is a Democrat or Republican, whether we are in America or Europe or Asia or Africa, wherever we are, we are exiles. Wherever we are, the church should look different. And we in the church should live this day in light of that day. For Christ alone is our Savior. And Christ alone is our King. May we find our hope and our peace and our joy in Him. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you that we have the gospel. We thank you that it is not a matter of ours attaining it, achieving it, of accomplishing it, but rather it is a matter of your grace. And so we pray that you would, you would open our eyes all the more and open our hearts all the more and speak to us and show us your goodness and your glory and your grace. Love us and help us to see that love that we might be made more like Christ Jesus. Loving you and loving our neighbors. Help us to walk faithfully with you. And Lord, when others look at us, may they see not us, but rather may they see the body of Christ who is good in all his ways. 
who is glorious beyond our imagination, who is powerful, able to do all things, and who is the King of kings. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Would you rise with me now as we sing hymn number 265, In Christ Alone.